to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of Mark, chapter 10, verse 13, as we follow along with today's lesson. Now they brought young children to Jesus that he should touch them. It's it's beautiful how proud parents are of their children and how they love it when people notice their children in an approving way. There's just something about it. You, You know that they're the most beautiful and the brightest little kids in the whole world. And you love it when others notice that too. And parents wanted Jesus to notice their children. And so the parents were bringing their children to Jesus, the rabbi, the master, in order that he might just touch them. But the disciples felt that it was an annoyance. And so they began to forbid the parents, rebuking those parents. Don't bother the Lord. Can't you see, you know, with your children? And they began to rebuke the parents. But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased. Uh, The Greek is he was filled with indignation. That his disciples would endeavor to keep someone from coming to him. Jesus always wanted to be open and be available. He wanted the people to know that he was always available. Even in little insignificant things such as touching children. It wasn't bothering him. He loved it. And so when he saw the disciples rebuking the parents, he was filled with indignation. And he said unto them, Allow those little children to come unto me. Don't forbid them. Of such is the kingdom of God. And verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. Receiving it with just the simplicity and the trust and the openness of a little child. Oh, how sad that we become so complex. How sad that we begin to wear masks. We try to cover. You don't find that with a little child. They're just blunt and honest, and, and, and it's beautiful. I love it. My little granddaughter looks at me, and she just picks out every flaw. <laughs> She's so honest, painfully honest. 
But that's one thing about a child. They, they have nothing to hide, and they're not trying to hide. They, they're just, and, and, and just that simplicity and that honesty. And that's, that's how we have to receive the kingdom of God. We come as a little child, and he took them up in his arms. What a beautiful picture. I love it. Jesus just taking the children up. Oh, how I'd love to have been there and brought my kids to him and just watch him hold them in his arms and put his hands on them and bless them. What a picture of our Lord. I love it. This is one of those tender touches of Jesus that just draws me to him. Now, when he had gone forth into the way, the way is the way towards Jerusalem. He's on his way to Jerusalem. And he is on his way to be crucified. He had talked to Moses and Elijah about his death to be accomplished in Jerusalem. And while they were still up there in that upper Galilee region, uh, he told his disciples, chapter 931, that the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. After that he is killed, he will rise the third day. They didn't understand that saying. But he's on his way, the way to Jerusalem. He has set his face like flint. He's going to the cross. And only he seems to realize that the disciples are oblivious to this. They're still thinking of the kingdom. They still think that maybe he'll overthrow the Roman authority when they get to Jerusalem. And he's going to set things right. And we'll be able then to have the positions of authority and power as he establishes his kingdom. So he had gone forth again into the way and there one came running up to him and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I might inherit eternal life? The other gospels tell us that he was young and uh, that he was rich. One of the gospels tells us that he was a ruler. He had the things that we usually think make for a good life. If I only had riches, if I were only young again, too soon old, too late smart, you know. I mean, if I only was young again with all the knowledge and all that I have now, you know. If I only had money, if I only had position, this fellow had it all, but he still had a lack. Success doesn't mean nearly as much to the person who has attained it. It's that illusion, that fantasy that pushes us, that drives us to become successful, to achieve or to attain certain goals. But once the goals are attained, then the excitement is gone. Donald Trump says the excitement is in seeking. Once you have found it, it's no longer exciting. Ted Turner said the excitement is the chase. Once you've caught it, it's empty. 
but that excitement of the anticipation, the fantasies that we have of, oh, I would just be so satisfied if I was just rich, if I just had a position. This fellow had it all, and he was empty. He recognized in Jesus a simplicity, a beauty. Maybe he saw the children and the way they responded to Jesus and the way Jesus responded to them. He was so into business and so into his possessions, he didn't have time for children. It's amazing how that our attitudes change once Jesus masters our hearts and lives. When we were in Tucson many years ago, the early years of our ministry, we moved next door to a captain in the Air Force and his wife, and the Spirit of God was working in their hearts in a very special way. Jan was the first one to accept the Lord, and she was born running, just so excited and just, oh, what a glorious experience she had when she received Jesus as her Lord and Savior. She was just such a beautiful neighbor, overflowing with joy. The day that she called me up and said, Chuck, come on over to my house. I need to talk to you. And when I went over there, she said, I need the Lord. I need to accept Jesus. And so we prayed with her, and she accepted the Lord, and just, as I said, born running, just overflowing with joy. Her husband, Jim, was a professor at Cornell University, an agnostic, avowed agnostic. And so she felt that she had to be careful how to break the news to him that she had accepted Jesus. And she was going to wait until one of those evenings when he appeared to be in the right mood and so forth, and she was going to share her experience. But when he got home from the air base that night, her daughters were jumping up and down and saying, Mommy, you're going to tell Daddy what happened when Chuck was over here today? <laughs> and he said, What the hell goes on around here when I'm not home, you know? <laughs> so she had to tell him. So the Lord opened the door for us to begin to share with Jim. And that glorious day when Jim and I knelt together and he accepted Jesus Christ. They had three beautiful girls, little girls, just little dolls. Shortly after Jim had accepted the Lord, he was transferred. He was uh, with SAC and he was transferred uh, to Alaska. And so he had to leave and go up to the base in Alaska while Jan then had to pack up all of the stuff and the Air Force moved them up there. But he had gone ahead. And I received from Jim a letter that I treasure to the present day as he thanked me for bringing him to Jesus Christ. He said, Chuck, I used to say children were the scourge of the earth. 
He said, I looked at my own little daughters as a nuisance, and they were in the way, a bother. But he said, since Jesus has come into my heart, he said, you know, I can't wait for them to get up here. I so long to see them. And he said, what a difference Jesus has made in our attitude towards children. And so Jesus blessing the little children. What a beautiful picture. Now this rich young ruler, he had it all as far as the world was concerned. But in his own heart, there was an emptiness. Good master, what must I do? Now Jesus answered him in an interesting way. He said, why do you call me good? There is only one that is good, and that is God. From that answer of Jesus, we have one of two conclusions. Jesus is saying to him, I'm no good. Or Jesus is awakening his consciousness to the recognition that Jesus is God. And I believe the latter to be true. Jesus is saying to him, look, without realizing it, you have recognized something. Look what you have recognized. What you see in me, what you desire in me, what you see of my love for children and my attitude towards people, that, that quality of life that you're recognizing is the life of God. I am God. What you need is God in your life. What you need is the life of God. And then Jesus said unto him, You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud and honor your father and mother. The six commandments of the second table of the law that deal with man's relationship with his fellow man. And he said, Lord... I have observed these from my youth. I do not believe that that was an um, empty boast. I think that this man was morally good. He was a moral man, so another quality. He was rich, he was young, he had position, and he was a moral man. After he said this, I've observed these from my youth, it says Jesus looked at him and loved him. Now, I think that had he been, you know, making a uh, false boast kind of a statement that Jesus would have cut in on him because Jesus could not stand hypocrisy. But he saw the earnestness. He looked at him and he loved him. And he said unto him, one thing you lack, go your way and sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. He went his way sad. He was grieved at that statement because he had great possessions, very wealthy man. One thing you lack. Now, it's interesting that in the first table of the law, our relationship to God the very first commandment is, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. 
though he had kept morally the second table and was a moral man and treated his neighbor right, yet his relationship with God was not right. There was a God in his life. It was his possessions. A God that was before the true and the living God. A God that was keeping him from surrendering all to God, from following God completely. And Jesus is saying, look, if you want to be perfect, if you want to be complete, then get rid of that which is standing in the way of your complete following of me. In his case, it was money. Now, Jesus said in Matthew's gospel, and and here in Mark's too, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Jesus is telling this young man what's standing in the way. Your possessions are standing in the way of following me. So as Jesus speaks to us, whatever it is in your life that is standing in the way of your full commitment to follow Jesus, to put God first, that's the thing that Jesus will put his finger on and say, look, this has to go. This is holding you back from following me. This is keeping you back from that full, rich life that you're desiring. Whatever it is that is usurping the place of God in your life. Then Jesus, as he walked away, looked round about and said to his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter the kingdom of God? With what difficulty they experience. Now the disciples were astonished. Jesus said again, modifying it a little, he said, Children, how hard it is for them who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were astonished out of measure. That that astounded them. And they said among themselves, well then, who can be saved? Now, when Jesus said, a camel going through the eye of a needle, there are those who will point in the great gates of the city or the great gates of a church, a small little sub-gate that was often left open at night. The big gates of the city were closed, but there was always this smaller gate that you could squeeze through, usually in the big gate. And they said that sometimes when People would come with their camels and so forth. Uh, They would have to unload the camels to put the goods through that small gate. And then one would get in front and pull the camel and others would push the camel to get it through that little smaller gate. And they said the smaller gate was called the eye of the needle. What they're basically trying to say that if you push and shove hard enough, you can make it. Use great enough effort, you can get in. But Jesus, in responding to the question, who then can be saved, said, with man it is impossible, 
Salvation is, I don't care how hard you shove or how hard you pull or how hard you try, you can't save yourself. How moral you are, your own morality will not save you. Jesus just flat said, with man it's impossible. Salvation is out of the reach of man's ability. You can't be good enough. You can't do enough good. With man, it is impossible. But not with God. For with God, all things are possible. Salvation is of the Lord. God can do the impossible. He can save you. He can redeem you. He can change you. With God, all things are possible. Then Peter began to say, Lord, we have left all and followed you. And that's true. They left their nets. They left their boats. They left the, the fishing industry. They had left that to follow Jesus. They turned their back on their own possessions. They left all to follow him. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and for the gospels. Now, that's the important thing. For my sake and the gospels, that he shall receive, but he shall receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands, with persecutions, and in the world to come, eternal life. God will not be your debtor. Jesus said to this young fellow, sell everything, you'll have great treasure in heaven. God won't be a debtor to you. God will never be a debtor to man. And God will replace anything that you give up to follow him a hundred times over. But then eternal life on top of that. But many that are first shall be last, and the last first. And so they were in the way, again, continuing in the way, going now up to Jerusalem, leaving the Jordan Valley, and going up now towards Jerusalem. And Jesus went before them. And, and the disciples were just sort of shocked. I mean, they, they could tell that Jesus was in sort of a pensive mood. He knew what was awaiting him in Jerusalem. And they didn't quite understand as he was going on before them. And they were there in amazement as they were following and they were filled with fear. Uh, there's, there's just something, there's a, perhaps a premonition of of this antagonism and, and all towards Jesus that has been building and, and, and they see Jesus in this rather serious mode and they're frightened. And he took again the 12 and he began to tell them the things that were going to happen to him. He said, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered unto the chief priests 
and unto the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will deliver him to the Gentiles. And they, the Gentiles, will mock him, and will scourge him, and will spit upon him, and shall kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 50, and Jesus is pretty much just uh, declaring the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 50. In verse 4, he said, The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He wakeneth me morning by morning. He wakeneth my ear to the learned, to hear as the learned. The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. Uh, the opening of the ear was the mark of the bond slave. It's a prophecy concerning Jesus, who in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, yet he emptied himself, came in the form of man, and in the likeness of man he humbled himself and became a servant and obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Ear open. Father, not my will, thy will be done. The, the, the submission to the Father. He's opened my ear. And thus I gave my back to the smiters. As he has prophesied here, they're going to scourge him. And my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. And I hid not my face from shame and from spitting. So those things that were prophesied of him in Isaiah, these are the things he is saying are going to happen when I get to Jerusalem. First, I'll be delivered to the chief priests, and they're going to condemn me to death. They'll turn me over to uh, the Gentiles, and they in turn will mock me, scourge me, and spit upon me and kill me. But the third day, I'll rise again. But somehow they never got that. They didn't hear that. Somehow when he talked about them killing him, their minds just shocked and they didn't hear any further. And now here are James and John. Now, the last time when he was talking about in, in chapter 9 how that he was going to go to Jerusalem and how they were going to kill him and so forth, um, Verse 31, I'm going to be delivered in the hands of men. They'll kill me. And after he is killed, he'll rise the third day. Uh, right after that, um, the disciples were in a big argument as who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. He's just talked about they're going to kill me. And, and now they're arguing over who's going to be the greatest. And now again, he tells them, you know, I'm going to be killed. And so what happens? James and John, sons of Zebedee, they came to him saying, Master, do us a favor. And Jesus said, what is it that you want? And they said, grant unto us that we might sit one on your right hand and the other on your left hand when you come into your glory. Still, this earthly... Now, these are the disciples. These are the disciples. In a way, it is rather comforting to realize that Jesus didn't call perfect people to do his work. Of course, how could he? There aren't any. 
And so he has to use the likes of us with our misunderstanding, often with our own selfish desires or motives. And yet he uses people just like us. But before he can use us, there has to be that transformation, that filling with his spirit, that transformation that comes by the Holy Spirit. But these are the kind of men that are going to be transformed and turn the world upside down. So here they are, still vying, you know, they... They were ashamed to admit that they were arguing about who was going to be the greatest. And Jesus said, look, you've got to be the servant. You've got to learn how to you know, serve others. And so Jesus asked them, are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink of, referring to his death, and to be baptized with the baptism where I am baptized? You're going to be able to handle that? And they said, we can. <laughs> They didn't even know what he was talking about. The blindness of ambition. And Jesus said, well, indeed you're going to be drinking of the cup and you're going to be baptized with the same baptism. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not really mine to give, but it is to those to whom it is or was it prepared. Or in other words, that's already ordained by God. And when the other ten heard it, they were filled with indignation, very displeased, same Greek word, filled with indignation with James and John, those guys trying to sneak in ahead of us. <laughs> so Jesus called the disciples to him, and he said unto them, you know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship, and the great ones exercise authority upon them. This is one of problems with man trying to reign over man, is that desire to exercise lordship, authority. It's a difficult thing to handle power. Very few people are capable of it without it going to their head. And, and Jesus said this is, this is the way it happens with the Gentiles. Those who are chosen, they, they begin to exercise lordship. But so shall it not be among you. Whoever will be great among you shall be your servant. And he uses the Greek word for servant here. Whoever would be great, he is your servant. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be, and here he uses the word slave, doulos, shall be the slave of all. The word minister and servant are the same. It's one who ministers to your needs. Unfortunately, through usage, through the years, it has uh, become uh, 
sort of a title of distinction and uh, uh, well, you know, it's the, the reverend or the most right reverend or the most holy right reverend. It's amazing how many things they can put on a title. And, and you become sort of elevated and you sort of begin to look for perks and for special favors, someone to carry your bags because you are actually the servant. Oh, I mean minister. You see, you say servant, it doesn't sound so elevated. But if you use the real word servant, then you begin to understand what the ministry should be about. It's about serving. And even more than that, it's about being a slave. Whoever would be the chiefest, let him become the slave of all. For, and our example, the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life as a ransom for many. I didn't come that you might serve me. I came to serve you, give my life for you. The true way to greatness is not up but down. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, learn to be the servant of all. Now, Jesus is going to try and impress this message on them as they get to Jerusalem and as they gather in the upper room to observe the Passover supper. He takes the towel and he goes around the room washing their feet. That's the job of the servant. And then having washed their feet, he said, do you see what I've done? They said, oh yeah. He said, well now, you call me Lord and Master, and that's right, because I am. But if I being your Lord and Master are washing your feet, then you ought to wash one another's feet. That is, that idea again of serving. The place of ministry is the place of service. So on the way up from the Jordan Valley, they come to Jericho. This is not the Jericho of Joshua's day. That's some five miles away. This is the Jericho of the times of Jesus. There was an upper and lower Jericho. The upper Jericho was for the elite. Herod built a winter palace, great winter palace in Jericho, swimming pools, gymnasiums, and all the luxuries he had there in upper Jericho. Lower Jericho uh, was more a uh, city for the common people. Uh, they were close to each other, just a short distance separating the two. And so as they came to Jericho, that would be the Lord Jericho, and as they went up out of Jericho with his disciples on the way towards uh, the upper Jericho, Herod's palace area, a great number of people were with them. And blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the highway side begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he asked, what's all the multitude about? What's how come all the noise? And they said, it's Jesus of Nazareth who is passing by. 
he began to cry out, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. Calling him by the messianic title, son of David. No doubt with the same thought of the disciples that he's going to set up his kingdom. He's going to reign. He's going to rule. And the kingdom age where the blind are going to see, the lame are going to walk, the deaf are going to hear. He's been doing those works. He's been opening the eyes of the blind. And Bartimaeus has heard of him. The fame of Jesus had spread abroad, especially among the impotent people. Especially among the blind, they all had heard of Jesus, how he was opening the eyes of the blind. And thus, here's his opportunity. What he had dreamed of, what he had longed for, a meeting with Jesus, the Messiah. Knowing what Jesus had done to others who were blind, hoping that he could meet him that he might receive his sight. And so he began to cry, Jesus, son of David, have mercy. And those around him, the multitude said, hold your peace, be quiet. But he was not to be deterred. He cried all the more, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy. And Jesus stood still. He heard his cry. He stopped. I love that. That that is so filled with, with drama. Jesus stopped. He's on the way to the cross. He's on the way to Jerusalem. He has set his face like flint. Uh, as you go on in Isaiah 50, it talks about having set his face like flint. He's heading towards the cross. But he pauses on the way to minister to a man in need. Jesus is never too busy to stop and meet your need. Jesus stood still, and he commanded that the man be called. He said, bring that fellow over here. And they said to him, be of good cheer. He's calling for you. And he got up with excitement and left his garment there. As I said this morning, there's, there's no doubt some significance there uh, to that leaving of the garment. Maybe it was just the old rags. And he realized that he wasn't going to be dressed in rags any longer. Once he meets Jesus, life is going to be different. Life is going to be changed. He left his garment. And he came to Jesus. And Jesus said unto him, What do you wish that I should do for you? And the blind man said unto him, Lord, that I might receive my sight. And Jesus said unto him, Go your way. Your faith has made thee whole. That's why I believe that there was some significance to the throwing of the garment. I think that that was an evidence of his faith. An evidence that he knew that his life wasn't going to be the same. I don't think afterwards he went back and searched for that dirty old garment and said, You know, anybody see the old rag that I left over here, you know? <laughs> I think he knew, I'm not going to need this anymore. Cast it aside to come to Jesus. It would be like, you know, throwing away your white cane. I'm not going to need that anymore. I'm going to go meet Jesus, and I'm going to be able to see. And so Jesus said unto him, go your way. 
Your faith has made you whole. And immediately he received his sight. Just immediately. And he followed Jesus in the way. Jesus said, go your way. But it is interesting, once his eyes were opened by Jesus, the way of Jesus became his way. And once we've had a real encounter with Jesus, his way becomes our way. And he followed Jesus in, here we are, (laughs) following Jesus in the way. Why? Because he has touched our lives with his love. Life is never the same once we have a real encounter with Jesus. Turn in our Bibles now to the 11th chapter of Mark's Gospel. In the 10th chapter, the last part of it, we left Jesus as he was passing through Jericho, coming from the area of the what they called Transjordan, the other side of the Jordan River, He is making his way to Jerusalem in order to be crucified. He knows exactly what is facing him, and he is on his way now to Jerusalem. So the 11th chapter picks up right after leaving the area of Jericho, coming up the road towards Jerusalem, about 18 miles or so from Jericho to uh, the edge of Bethphage and Bethany. So when they came near to Jerusalem, unto Bethphage and to Bethany, Bethphage is the house of figs, Bethany is the house of dates. At the Mount of Olives, he sent forth two of his disciples And he said unto them, Go your way into the village over against you. And as soon as you have entered into it, you're going to find a colt that is tied, whereon never a man sat. Loose him and bring him. And if any man say unto you, Why do you do this? Or what are you doing? Say that the Lord has need of him. And immediately he will send him hither. And so they went their way, and they found the colt tied by the door without the place where the two ways met, and they loosed him. And certain of them that were standing there said unto them, What are you doing, loosing the colt? And they said unto them, Even as Jesus had commanded, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and cast their garments on him, and he sat upon him. And many spread their garments in the way, and others cut down branches off of the trees and strawed them in the way. And they went before, and they that followed. And they cried, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered in Jerusalem and into the temple. And when he had looked round about upon all these things, now it was eventide, he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. Bethany is on the Mount of Olives, but it is on the um, slope 
toward the Judean wilderness. Actually, it doesn't face Jerusalem, but does face out towards the Judean wilderness. But it is there on the side of the Mount of Olives. And as Jesus is coming, he instructs his disciples concerning this colt that is tied and again demonstrating his supernatural knowledge, telling them of the circumstances of the loosing of the colt and bringing it to Jesus. Now, we do remember that up until this point, Jesus has avoided public recognition of himself as the Messiah. Whenever a movement would start towards acclaiming him as the Messiah, he would quash that movement either by just leaving the midst of them or uh, by saying difficult things that would cause them to just sort of scratch their heads and walk away. On many of the special miraculous works that he did, he told the people, just go your way and don't tell anybody. Keep it quiet. For he was seeking to discourage any premature movement towards presenting him to the nation as the Messiah. And that was very important. Because in God's timing, God had set a day for the coming of the Messiah to Israel. And he had to come right on God's appointed day. And any premature attempt to acclaim him as Messiah would have been wrong. But now this day is different, for this is the day that God had promised to the nation. And the prophet Zechariah had spoken of this day in very clear terms as he declared, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, the king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly, and riding upon a donkey, upon a colt, the foal of a donkey. Because it was prophesied that the Messiah would come riding in on a donkey, Jesus instructed the disciples where to find the donkey, to bring him, untie him and bring him to me. And when they challenge you, just tell them the Lord needs him and they will let you bring it. And so he is deliberately setting the stage to enter Jerusalem even as was prophesied by Zechariah to enter it riding on the donkey this is to resolve all of the doubts 
that they may have had concerning his claim as the Messiah. They had earlier said, tell us plainly, this will resolve their doubts. This will be the fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah. Now, the disciples picked up on the significance, and thus they began to quote the 118th Psalm, which is one of the Messianic Psalms that deals with this day. As you pick up in verse 22 of Psalm 118, the stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. We know that is a prophecy concerning Jesus. He was to be refused by the builders, by the leaders of the nation, yet he, he is to become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And then this is the day that the Lord has made, the day that the stone will be refused. The king who will come in the name of the Lord will be rejected. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Rejoice, O Jerusalem. Shout for joy, ye daughters of Zion. Behold, your king cometh. The word save now, verse 29, in the Hebrew that is Hosanna. It is not translated in the New Testament, but just given in the Hebrew as they began to quote this psalm, Hosanna, or save now, that's what Hosanna means. I beseech thee, O Lord, O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. God is the Lord, which has showed us the light. And then it's interesting, he goes on to say, bind the sacrifice with cords, even under the horns of the altar. And talking about the sacrifice, which Jesus, of course, was to accomplish before this week is over. This is the day that the Lord has made. In Daniel chapter 9, as the angel Gabriel instructed Daniel concerning the future of the nation of Israel and of the holy city of Jerusalem, he declared to Daniel that there were 77s that were determined upon your people and upon the holy city. Verse 24. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity. Now that's exactly the purpose of Jesus in coming, is to make the reconciliation for iniquity. To make an end of sins, to complete the transgression, finish the transgression. And to bring in everlasting righteousness. And to seal up the vision and prophecies. And to anoint the most holy. And then he said, Know therefore and understand, from the time the commandment goes forth to restore and rebuild Jerusalem will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. And the walls shall be built again, even in troublous times. But after the sixty-two sevens shall the Messiah be cut off. 
but not for himself, or not receive for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof will be with a dispersion. And unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the book of Mark in our next broadcast as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on the day which the Lord has made. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Mark 10 through 11 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Father, we thank you tonight for our precious Lord. And how we thank you, Lord, that you have met us at our place of need. And you are transforming our lives day by day. Lord, help us that we will not stop short of that work that you wish to do in our lives because of your tremendous love for us. May we always be open to you and to the things that you desire to accomplish in us and through us as we follow you. Lord, lead us. In your path of righteousness, For your name's sake, amen. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. I'd like to tell you about a book written by Chuck Smith entitled Living Water. In this book, Pastor Chuck explains how God has the power to change your life through His Holy Spirit. This book will help you to understand how the Holy Spirit works in your life covering such topics as who is the Holy Spirit, what does the Holy Spirit do, what are the gifts of the Spirit, and how should I respond? It's Pastor Chuck's desire that by God's grace and through this book, the Lord will develop in you a hunger and thirst for the things after the Spirit that will help you come into a deep and personal relationship with Him so that your life will be transformed. To find out more and to read a book preview, visit thewordfortoday.org and click on the link to download Living Water by Chuck Smith. Or if you would like to order this book in print, call The Word for Today at 800-272-WORD. 
That's 800-272-9673.